This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Professor Mary Louise McClaw has joined me. Mary Louise is an epidemiologist at UNSW and a member of the World Health Organization's Advisory Panel for Infection Prevention and Control Preparedness and Response to COVID-19. Mary Louise talks about Victoria's latest coronavirus outbreak due to a breach of South Australia's hotel quarantine system. Victoria is subsequently in its fourth lockdown. We talk about the issues relating to this outbreak, including its concerning presence in the private residential aged care sector, as well as what the lockdown is achieving, when it might be over, and the race to vaccinate Victorians and all Australians. Then, finally, Dr Emma Shortus, an Uncommon Sense regular and research fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, returns to discuss the latest in US politics. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are and uh, shout out if you are locked down in Victoria. As I said, we're very excited. I'm very excited and I know I'll speak on behalf of others who really love listening to Mary Louise and tell me so, but I'm very pleased to have her back on the program to talk about this entire situation. Mary Louise is a professor in epidemiology at the UNSW. She's also a member and advisor to the World Health Organization on their advisory panel for infection prevention and control preparedness and response to COVID-19. And Mary Louise has joined me on this program before a number of times, especially in lockdown, but also out of lockdown to talk about so many of these issues relating to the pandemic locally and globally. Obviously, we're in a very acute phase locally here in Victoria, given that there is an outbreak, of course, quite a small one in comparison to a number of other countries around the world, but still a significant one for a state that had uh, zero community transmission for so many days. And really, I know a number of people felt that things kind of almost seemed quite normal. So it is quite a shock to be back here again. And I know um, it can be also a little bit upsetting for people as well to be taken back to last winter when we were in such a long lockdown. But I welcome Mary Louise now to talk about all of these issues and to provide us with the expert insights from an epidemiological perspective. Hi there, Mary Louise, and thanks so much for coming back onto the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, except in these uh, circumstances, it'd be nicer to talk to you theoretically than being in another lockdown. So sorry about that. Yeah, exactly. And I know uh, everyone listening who is in Victoria would probably agree with you there. Um, Certainly, it's something that I didn't really think was going to be happening so soon. And so it is quite a shock to, to many people and obviously has changed many people's plans as well. Uh, But one of the things that is quite surprising about this situation this time around is that uh, we did see this case come from hotel quarantine in South Australia. That part isn't surprising. I guess the surprising element was that we thought that the man who had come across 
from South Australia, done his 14 days quarantine in South Australia, went, flew straight back to Victoria, became positive later on, a couple of days later, got his test. We thought that that man, the now so-called Woolert man, we thought that he hadn't really spread it. Then we had exposure sites for those areas uh, in Melbourne in the outer suburbs and it seemed that that had kind of taken care of itself and that person wasn't super infectious and therefore um, nothing to see here. Unfortunately, that clearly isn't the case and we don't find ourselves in that situation anymore. Taking ourselves back a little bit to South Australia just for one moment, I did want to ask you about the transmission point uh, between this man in hotel quarantine in South Australia and another person in an adjacent room in this hotel system because apparently, from what the news reports say, this alert man was finishing up his hotel quarantine period. Another person was quarantining with someone who became COVID positive. That COVID positive person was removed and put into a Medi hotel. However, the person that had been staying with that person who became COVID positive got put into the room next to the Wallert man. And therefore, the explanation uh, that South Australia has come up with is that the Wallert man has unfortunately, through airborne transmission, got COVID from that person who since then also developed coronavirus. I know that's a little bit confusing perhaps to people, but could you share with us your thoughts on that situation, given that this really isn't the first time of suspected airborne transmission and it's also a little bit controversial that that primary close contact was not moved also out of precaution? Well, my first response is that when you're running an outbreak, um, you have to be highly pessimistic and highly precautionary. You can't do things halfway to take one person out and assume that that person that's remaining in the room is not going to acquire, acquire the infection because we do know from a Wuhan experience that family clusters occur and there should have been a precautionary approach to the two people sharing the room, that they would both be eventually found to be positive. And um, uh, so, first of all, that is a surprising and an oversight. It's, it's a terrible oversight. Secondly, we have known since last year and since I was agitating, but so were other um, scientists agitating that hotels are not purpose-built for a highly infectious agent. They are built as either offices or homes where the airflow is acceptable. It's at a, at a rate that you would expect in your home or, or in an office, in a small office. When you have two people who are exhaling infectious particles, those particles have the opportunity to build up fast if the airflow change doesn't keep up with that build-up. And in hospitals, there's a regulation that says a ward that's for uh, pathogenic uh, infections has to be changed 10 times per hour per patient per average size ward. That's a very high level. And there's probably no hotel in Australia that could keep up with that. Therefore, there needed to be a long vision of uh, how to improve things because every single infection we've had 
since the lockdown on the 20th of March last year has been directly or indirectly related to quarantine failures. So we had a failure of uh, the second person in the room being moved out. We have a potentially explainable failure, but it's not acceptable uh, that this man from South Australia, I think you called him um, Wallet Man, would have, the most common thing, would he would have acquired it through breathing it in, and that we don't ever say that the air ducts give you uh, the infected air. That's not what we talk about when we're talking about air change. Uh, each room has its own air. It's just that it's not refreshed enough. And when you open up the doors, uh, they can act often as a positive air pressure where the uh, particles flow out of the room. The corridors are usually fairly dead space compared to what you would expect in a hospital. And then if Mr. Wallet Man opens up the door, he may inadvertently open up to a face full of particles. I'm not sure why he wouldn't open up his door with a mask on to protect himself, but he may well have. So if that is the explanation, we are still, still not learning about the problems of what I term opportunistic airborne spread. And we know that many respiratory infections or infections that are acquired through the respiratory tract, because this is basically an inflammatory disease that you acquire through the respiratory tract of your eyes uh, going into your lungs, uh, needs to be uh, factored in when you're looking after people who you assume are danger to the community because that's why you've put them in isolation and that they should be in a place uh, that doesn't place the return travellers at any risk because we have an ethical responsibility that we provide them with the same amount of care as we're providing the general community when we put the travellers under the same roof. Mm. And that uh, duty of care is not being followed through. So it's a concern. Then Wallet Man assumed he was okay, took the virus with him because no quarantine hotel system yet in any state or territory except uh, the Howard Springs, I believe, are testing uh, travellers on the very last day in the last 15 minutes of their stay. And had they done that, this man may well have tested positive because a rapid antigen test, otherwise known affectionately in, um, in the business as RATS, rapid antigen tests, perform particularly well when you repeat the test on the same population. So you would repeat it on day zero when they arrive in the country and then several days through their stay because they are very good at spotting if you've turned positive early before you get symptoms. So you can be moved out early to keep everybody else in the quarantine system safe. And then you test them on the last day. And that may have told the authorities that this man is positive. And often authorities use the excuse that they have false positives. Yes, that's true. But PCR testing, which this man had got twice only, often has false negatives. 
Now, wouldn't you prefer a false positive? So if he tested falsely positive, he could have a PCR test done as a confirmatory. Mm. So um, it's, it just beggars belief that we are still not using science. And these rapid antigen tests cost a fraction of the price of a PCR, and they could be used to augment the PCR. They cost about $15, and they take about 15 minutes. Indeed. Well, that's something that I know you've been advocating for, as a number of others have for a very long time during this pandemic. And as you say, it's something to supplement the program, not to replace PCR tests. It does, I agree, make a lot of sense to take that precautionary approach. And if you have a false positive to confirm it through a PCR. I also really appreciated what you said about our duty of care to those who are going through hotel quarantine because we are expecting them to be locked up in a hotel for 14 days on the proviso that we're protecting the community from them if they become positive. But we also need to make sure that we're protecting them from other positive patients within that complex. So I wondered in terms of the Indian variant, which no doubt South Australia would have sequenced um, in that first positive case that then gave it to the case that was in the adjacent room next to our Melbourne Wallert man. I, I wonder if that's something that should and could be taken into account in these situations if we are very concerned about a certain variant, like we originally were about the UK variant. Now we've seen that at least preliminary scientific studies are showing that the Indian variant could be more transmissible or contagious. I wonder if that's a factor that we should be putting into our considerations when we're thinking about risk. And I wonder if you could share with us um, your thoughts about the Indian variant and the various strains that are currently circulating um, and whether that is something that Victoria should be concerned about that we are contending with right now in our own community. Absolutely. The uh, longer it takes for our Australians and Australian residents to come home, the greater the risk of them bringing home a variant of concern or a variant of interest. The difference between a variant of concern and a variant of interest is just one factor, and that is that one of them, the variant of um, concern, causes more severe infection. And uh, this type, this uh, virus that uh, Wallet Man has and those that he acquired it from, is called B1617.1. There are three subgroups from this uh, B1617, otherwise um, known as the Indian variant. And dot two, which we don't have in this circulating virus at the moment, is a variant of concern. It does cause more severe infection. The one we have that's circulating in Victoria right now is dot one, and it is more infectious, absolutely. And it uh, is likely to have a reduction in efficacy of the vaccine. So we need to be mindful when people come home that they are tested on day zero to triage them safely into a place that is better built than what we have at the moment so that um, they don't pose a risk to, to the general community. And then keep testing those that are, have been triaged as negative because they don't always remain negative. It's just that 
the tests may not pick them up immediately. Their viral load may be very low. But with a rat test, they, they pick up people with low viral loads uh, very easily. And a plain load of people coming in with a variant of concern or a variant of interest may well have a high viral load earlier than later. But this man is, and his infection and spread is quite interesting, not in a good way, though. Um, so he left on the 4th of May. He tested positive on the 10th. So there's six days. That's about an incubation period. That's fine, and which means that he was probably infectious on the 7th, 8th, and 9th before he got tested. And the delay in testing is very commonplace. A lot of Australians wait to the second or third day to get tested because they're not thinking catastrophically. And this man thought, mm, I've, pro I've been tested negative on day 13. I, you know, I've probably got a cold or I'm just tired. You know, I've been released into the community and I might be doing a lot of walking and, and a lot of um, entertainment, so I could be just tired. Uh, the other, But the interesting part about this is that then he became infectious likely on the 7th, 8th, the 9th. And then the next cluster didn't happen until quite later on, uh, about, I believe, the 24th or 25th of May. So his viral load may not have been high, but um, in retrospect now, given that I believe today Victoria's got up to about 60-odd cases, it wouldn't matter. The fact is that this virus has learned how to hop from one human being and into the cell of the ACE2 receptor site very effectively. So viruses, this particular class of virus, uh, will change just naturally anyway. But when we put it under pressure from all sorts of things, partial vaccination or gets into somebody that's immunosuppressed, it quickly learns under pressure how to get into the cell more effectively or how to stay on that ACE2 receptor site cell uh, very stably to then uh, get its spike in and enter the cell and then it spreads. Uh, mind you, though, the, the scientists at the moment are learning a lot at, a, at, a, at the speed of light. At WHO, we are very lucky to be updated constantly by these world-class scientists and virologists who tell us about what, where their thinking's going about the variants of concern and variants of interest and uh, the theories of potentially how they become so infectious. So we need to, as a country, realise that when we do bring people home, the likelihood of them being positive is high. The likelihood of that virus being able to spread more rapidly is high. And we need to do much more testing while they're under um, quarantine and then really better testing on the last day. It reminds me of a conversation I had with Associate Professor Stuart Turville from UNSW, who I know is based at the Kirby Institute and is also looking at coronavirus in a, a lot of detail and in terms of how variants are detected, how they're emerging, how they're changing. And I know that in the last Melbourne lockdown, he said that Melbourne was on the verge of the variant in our area starting to morph and mutate into something more concerning. So one of the risks, of course, of allowing community transmission to spread and to not lock down is, in fact, the virus actually being able to evolve and, as you say, become more effective 
at infecting more people and also potentially making that disease a lot worse. So I wonder if when we talk about the effectiveness of lockdown or why do we even go into lockdowns, which unfortunately has been a question that a number of media continue to ask, and I thought we'd already kind of covered that question last lockdown, but uh, maybe we should go to it again. When we're thinking about lockdowns, one of those considerations I would presume is to prevent further variants or or at least mutations that may or may not be concerning. But also, um, surely there are other reasons why we would go into a lockdown to try and um, stamp out this community transmission. So I wonder, Mary Louise, I know it's something pretty basic, but because it keeps coming up at press conferences and because I see a lot of confusion around in the community, could we just quickly touch on the reasons why lockdown is brought in and what purpose it has in an acute situation that we find ourselves in right now? So one of the very simple and cost-effective methods of keeping the spread from continuing is social distancing, or we prefer to call it at WHO, um, physical distancing. Now, that's fine if people wear their mask all the time and they're not in an area where people are concerned about acquiring it through your eyes. Your eyes have ACE2 receptor sites and in hospitals, healthcare workers and in quarantine hotels, the workers wear a face shield. And that's to protect their eyes from acquiring it. We don't know what the infectious dose is through the eyes, but you don't want to test that. So if you're kept at home and the authorities can then ensure that everybody's in a safe place. It it puts a control on the spread. Now, you may well have it at home and you may spread it to your family, but sadly that would have happened anyway. But what they're doing is preventing you from spreading it to friends and work colleagues where the airflow change isn't high enough, uh, where people often game the system often not deliberately. I mean, some of the early infections that quarantine staff may have acquired through is by just removing their mask for a short time under their chin to give them a respite because masks are not easy to wear. I mean, healthcare workers have learnt to adapt and they wear them for many hours, although at WHO we've tried to identify exactly how long you can wear a mask before you become a, a danger to yourself through mask fatigue. So there, there is this mask fatigue as well. And that may not have come into the thinking of the authorities, that conscious thinking, but from a, an outbreak management perspective where people bring in all of these different uh, factors, that would be one of them that's very, very important. So it's... It's sadly keeping you in a safe place so that the number of primary contacts that you might have because you are infectious, about from the third day of exposure, that's how fast it happens. And then that level of probability of you becoming infectious increases to day four where 50% of people are infectious to others, then it increases on day five. And day six and seven is usually where you start to get symptoms. That reduces that likelihood that you're a risk to others without you realising it because humans 
are often optimistic and think, I feel okay, therefore I am okay. Uh, and they don't mean to be problematic to the containment. Uh, it's just that they can't possibly see that they could be a case or a, a potential source. If you asked, and it would be very interesting to ask all the recent cases, how, and I'm sorry, that's the kind of term epidemiologists use, cases rather than people with uh, COVID or people with uh, SARS-CoV-2, because you don't always have the disease, uh, and SARS-CoV-2 is, is the infection, and it may go onto the disease, COVID-19. But if you ask them all, did you have any inkling, did you suspect you could be a case and therefore a source of infection to others? Uh, you know, Wallet Man would have said, absolutely not. And so would the, of all the other cases. They would have found it unusual uh, to even think like that because we are optimistic um, and because you can catch it before people become uh, symptomatic. And that's why the easiest, most effective method, and it's tough, is to ask you to stay at home. And it's yeah. really tough. And the bigger the number of infections out there, and therefore the greatest number of primary contacts that the department has to contact to then prioritise, are you a risk, of, you know, have you been tested? Are you staying at home? Where do you think you caught it from? So that they can then go and chase other contacts takes a long time. It could take at least a half an hour to have a good conversation with those primary contacts. And the last time I had a look on the website, you know, there, there were over 10,000, I think, primary contacts that have to be prioritised and have to be contacted. So you've got to stop people inadvertently becoming the source to other people. Yeah. Well, it's true. If you look at the uh, the COVID website, coronavirus.vic.gov.au, and you even check the exposure site list, as I have been, and you look at um, all the, the dates that keep being added, we're currently at 329 exposure sites. And obviously it will be climbing that the more cases there are. And so that is obviously another concern and something that you've just mentioned there is, you know, the effect of a lockdown is to minimise the number of primary close contacts and also, of course, the number of places you've been for a, an extended period of time. And so that is also another thing that lockdown will hopefully achieve is to drive down the number of exposure sites. But we have now seen exposure sites from places like retail shopping centres and, you know, finance office places and uh, bars and cafes. We're now seeing, as of a couple of days ago, things become eerily similar to last year now that it has moved into aged care. We're at the early stages of um, an outbreak in aged care in Victoria, but it certainly did ring alarm bells, I'm sure, for everyone hearing that, given that so many uh, elderly people in Victoria last year died of coronavirus. Uh, 655 Victorian aged care residents died with COVID last year. So I wonder if you could just talk us through aged care at the moment, because it seems that it is the greatest concern 
at this point and also a concern in particular because it's in private aged care settings, not public, which is run by the state. Therefore, we're seeing a lot of pressure being placed on the federal government, particularly around their policies in terms of vaccination of aged care staff aged care residents, but also, of course, the site rule, the one site only rule, which was rolled back at the end of November 2020 and has only just been put back in place on Friday, which was to prevent staff from working at more than one aged care site. So uh, with those kind of criticisms and critiques in mind, I wondered if you could give us your take on the situation in aged care and the role of the federal government in trying to minimise the spread. Well, you've got a very difficult situation where uh, carers in aged care facilities uh, earn very little money per hour and they do a really important job and they often have to work across campuses to make ends meet often or to assist because the uh, number of people being hired is not sufficient uh, to cover the required uh, number of staff to to residents. And don't forget, these residents are are fragile. Um, They need help in and out of bed. They need help uh, in in the bathroom. Um, They often need help uh, to eat. And carers play a central role. They're, They're like nurses. Nurses are essential to how a hospital runs. And carers are central. And I think that... I appreciate people being given a choice about having a vaccine. There needs to be choice in life, but the choice here is an ethically difficult one. You've got uh, carers that cannot keep their social or physical distance between their, the resident and themselves. You know, you're picking somebody up, you're, you're turning them in bed, you're changing them, you're feeding them. It's, that's pretty impossible. You can't expect the carer who isn't vaccinated to wear a mask for their whole shift, which may be 8 to 12 hours. That's too difficult. And we um, observed that in 2003 uh, during SARS, where healthcare workers in the SARS-designated hospital were working really long shifts and with, with their PPE on. And the longer the shift and the longer the pandemic went on for, uh, the greater the risk of them acquiring COVID through what we term is personal protective equipment fatigue. So the only way you can offer an ethical option to care staff around the vaccine is to give them a time to make the decision and then for the authorities to find them a job outside of the industry if they're unwilling or unsure about getting vaccinated because they play such a central role in preventing the spread. So they and the quarantine hotel staff and frontline healthcare worker staff are the group that I believe cannot have a choice. I mean, staff have to be vaccinated for influenza if they work in aged care. They have to be vaccinated if they work with cancer patients uh, because the duty of care to the vulnerable is paramount. So you've got to increase 
their pay. They can't keep working across campuses without being vaccinated. Then once they're vaccinated, I would prefer that you would double check that they've actually developed an immune response. If they have, because there'll be a proportion that won't, that they can then work across campuses. But unless they've got the vaccine and the assurance that they're doing okay, they should not work across campuses. If the, if the authorities don't want to do that test to identify if they've developed an, an antibody response, then make it a blanket rule. You've got to increase the pay and give them a full shift work or, or the equivalent of what they would have made for a full shift work and only allow them to work on a single campus mm. so that everybody is safe. Well, I, I agree. It does make a, a lot of sense. And I know that uh, a number of people in aged care have wanted to get their vaccine and they've been or were prioritised in the phase 1A cohort of people. However, it's been quite difficult for some to actually get the vaccine. We have heard anecdotal reports that when the private people um, who were contracted through the federal government went into aged care residencies, they gave um, the aged care residents their first dose, but it was only if there was any spare left over that aged care workers could potentially have one of their first doses and then they would need to go and procure their own second dose through a state hub or a GP. Some have also said that they weren't offered that at all and that they were told they just had to go get a vaccine from their GP, which, as we know, if any of those people were under 50, would have found that impossible given the preference for Pfizer. So there are some fair critiques of the federal government and also having those critiques backed up by numbers. I noted that last night, Greg Hunt, the health minister at the federal level, said 70,000 people who work in aged care um, in that private-run aged care sector had been vaccinated through the Commonwealth program. Um, and as a, a journalist from the ABC reported, that's uh, roughly 19% of the aged care workforce. We know that the state government here in Victoria have said that they finished their vaccination program of aged care staff in April. So we are seeing a quite a very different or stark approach uh, between the federal government and how they've been delivering the vaccine program, which technically they are responsible for, versus the state-run program here in Victoria. So I wondered if you had any commentary around the vaccine program, whether it's relating to aged care, which has been obviously the focus more recently, because even as of last week, we heard that a, a number of people in aged care in Victoria hadn't even had their first dose yet. So we don't have a fully vaccinated aged care resident population. Um, but also, I wonder if you had any thoughts more broadly about uh, the vaccination rollout here in Victoria and, um, and what can be done in this current situation that we find ourselves in? Well, first of all, the authorities and all owners and anyone running a residential aged care facility need to give respect to the staff who work in aged care. They are really important. They are looking after our much beloved um, elderly population. That respect during a pandemic basically equates to uh, getting the vaccine as soon as possible because it protects 
the residents as well. Now, some of the residents will decide they don't want to have the vaccine because of their, their age uh, and their medical frailty. So the best way of protecting them is to ensure that the, the staff are fully vaccinated. Now, you can't expect the staff to be vaccinated with AstraZeneca because it takes three months between dose one and dose two to be fully uh, protected. And that's too long, given that we've had over 21,000 cases in Australia caused directly or indirectly from a breach of quarantine. And, of course, uh, it has found its way into aged care. And it often finds its way into aged care through staff who may live in a hyper-connected uh, community. Um, and they're relatively young. They're often uh, under 50. And this is the group that I've been agitating uh, should have got Pfizer right from the word go and should have been offered it as a priority. So after offering Pfizer to frontline workers, that includes residential aged care facilities, everyone under the age of 50 should then be the next priority because they act as a, a barrier. Imagine them like a fence. And there's the occasional hole in the fence where some people won't get vaccinated for many reasons, but the majority of them act as this fence. And the virus may come across this fence, but doesn't come across the very occasional hole. And had this group, the 20 to 50, been prioritised immediately and through vaccination hubs, we may not have seen this occur in residential facilities because those three workers, the staff, may have been in that age group that should have been prioritised either as carers or as under 50s. So either way, there's been a woefully slow rollout. Often in, there's been a criticism of the public saying that they're hesitant. I don't necessarily support that. I do know there's a group of Australians who are very um, concerned or uh, are very anxious because they think that, the that this vaccine has been developed so rapidly. And therefore, they may take time to, to consider their position, but it doesn't mean they're truly hesitant. It just means they're much more concerned and, and they want to take time. They don't want to be rushed. So the most important factor in uptake is actually making the vaccine available. If it's not there, then people are not going to be um, vaccinated because there's a theory that says... The early adopters and will take up the vaccine or any other um, behaviour of interest. And then after they've done it successfully without a disaster, then the later adopters will take it up. And then those that are labelled hesitant will then see it's OK, will hear more about the science and they'll take it up. So to blame the community for their hesitancy is just unfair and I think that the rollout has been woefully slow. And I was surprised that vaccination hubs weren't already in the pipeline at the beginning. Uh, so in January, I think it was, I, I wrote 
um, a tweet that said, we're going to need over 100,000 injections per day if the authorities want us to be vaccinated by October. Now, we weren't anywhere near that, and we've only just started to get to 100,000 a day, but on average, since the rollout, it's still at about 60 to 70,000 injections per day, but we're improving. But that was a hint to say, this is big and you need all the help you can get. And then I wrote another one saying, you need hubs, you need to use stadiums, but that's not the only thing you need. Um, people who are young, the 20 to 39-year-olds, are often overworked in multiple jobs, don't have a lot of spare time, may use it to sleep in or go and do some socialising, as they should, and don't have time to get to a hub. In Victoria, that hub is fairly central. But in Sydney, it's a long way away. So you really do need to uh, factor in how can you get a hub that is responsible for the Pfizer rollout that the young can um, access, and that is by local government. Now, local governments can't offer this without the federal government asking them to assist. And I predict that local governments would fall over themselves to help because they've got a strategy of, I think it was the 2020 to 2023 strategy that talked about immunisation, public health, and they would want to help their community. So you don't need a huge hall. You just need a place where the locals between the ages that can get Pfizer can walk there. They don't have to use expensive public transport and many hours to get there and wait and get home. They walk there, get injected and walk home again. And that will then help. The fact that our authorities have been slow to take up hubs was surprising. We don't even have a bus to take the vaccines out to the regional areas. I mean, in Australia, a lot of our population live out there. And how are they going to get vaccinated with Pfizer? You can't expect the GPs to do this. It's quite complex. They can do that. That's no trouble because they can do, you know, medical procedures and surgical procedures. But it's complex in that once you reconstitute a frozen vial, it's only viable for a number of hours and you don't want to waste one dose. So you really want it in an area where you're getting multiple people coming. And um, in Israel, the UK and, um, and, in, and America, people often turn up at uh, hubs with the hope uh, that late at night uh, they'll be lucky enough to get their first um, or their final um, dose because somebody hasn't turned up. And that's the sort of thing that would work in regional Victoria or regional Australia, but you'd have to do it through the local government. Mm. Absolutely. I agree. And I know that uh, regional Victoria is a place or, well, multiple places that need to be a clear focus. And um, we have seen in Victoria some great regional hubs. I know that the old Ford factory in Geelong has been doing really well and getting people through really quickly. And of course, the city ones as well. Now that we do see that there 
is a rush. And I think uh, another point to make is that um, in in relation to your point that people aren't hesitant is the fact that they've been receiving, I guess, mixed messages from various governments, the federal government saying it's not a race, it's not a rush, we can take our time, there's no community transmission. And then others in the states and in the community saying, well, actually, we need to get vaccinated ASAP. We're very lucky to have no community transmission and need to make the most of this fantastic position we're in. Unfortunately, now we're not in a position in Victoria um, that is of zero community cases. So we are even more uh, in a rush or in a race than we were before. And I wanted to ask you, Mary Louise, just about the value and the importance of getting your first dose quickly, but also making sure that you're setting yourself up for the second dose and just how important it is to get that second dose in terms of its overall effectiveness once you're fully vaccinated in regards to some of the variants of concern? Well, here's the rub. Um, the, the variant of concern does reduce the vaccine efficacy, and this is why it is a race, because we're going to have more people coming in with a variant of concern. If we keep having breaches, there will be circulating virus. We need to eliminate this very fast. But getting back to the vaccine issue, we need to vaccinate everybody prior to circulation, so it is a race. So, for example, the Indian variant, the B1617.2, the, the efficacy for both um, Pfizer and AstraZeneca for one dose and 21 days after the first dose, you're only protected at about 33%. So the Pfizer doesn't look as if it's really um, working much better than AstraZeneca. But where Pfizer is ahead of the race is that with the second dose, 21 days after the first dose, uh, that efficacy goes up to 88% and then eventually reaches sort of 95%. So, in fact, uh, there is very good evidence that just with the timing that it's a good thing to do. Um, to, to try to get everybody vaccinated before we get variants of concern. The B1617.1 uh, that's circulating in Melbourne at the moment does have an impact on um, the uh, efficacy, uh, but it's, it's not a huge impact. It's, it, yeah, it's, it's not huge. Uh, it's, it's still very worthwhile getting it, but remember that you are at risk of acquiring COVID. You're not 95% protected until that second dose, and even then, 14 days after that second dose. So when you get your Pfizer, still wear your mask in crowded areas because you don't want to get a virus to then have your body and immune system act as a playground for it to then learn even smarter ways of getting around your partial immune response um, for, the, for this virus to then mutate as, a, as an Australian strain. Mm. Mary Louise, uh, that's a great reason to get your first dose as soon as you possibly can so that you can then eventually get that second dose and wait the requisite two weeks to be properly covered. So I know that that would provide no doubt an impetus for people to to do that and also once they're eligible, of course, um, and to, to be 
take all those precautions that we've been talking about throughout this show. Just finally, Mary Louise, given that this is probably the question on everyone's mind in Victoria right now, the lockdown here is meant to be originally for seven days. I believe we're on day five. We've just seen the numbers come through that there are nine cases today, six of which have been reported later in the day yesterday, so three cases we weren't aware of through the news today. So I wonder, with that information in mind and the number of currently active cases in the community, from an epidemiological perspective, do you think it's likely or what would be the the considerations around either finishing the lockdown at the seven days or extending it? And do you think we're going to be in a longer lockdown than has been announced so far? Um. Sadly, and don't shoot the messenger, sadly, uh, from an outbreak management perspective, what you're supposed to do is use the um, average incubation period, which is about six, seven days. Multiply that twice, so you have 14 days. Where you're supposed to, if you're going for elimination, and we have to go for elimination because this is a variant of interest, you're going to expect 14 days of zeros. If you were very, very correct or, you know, very stringent, given that you've got over 329 locations that this virus could have spread from, uh, the likelihood that this is not just a confined cluster, but a cluster across multiple postcodes, then the correct method is using twice the maximum incubation period of any outbreak. And the maximum incubation period uh, for this one is 14 days, and that would be 28 days of zeros. But if the authorities can see that there's no additional virus found in wastewater where it hadn't been located before, People keep coming out to be tested who haven't been tested and they keep getting negatives. If they've worked their way through the priority list for contact tracing and there's been a little to make them worry, then you may get away with 14 days where you expect zero. I was very impressed with the state during the more recent um, outbreak where uh, they required this Uh, outbreak management rule 101 uh, that says you have to have 14 days of a smaller cluster of zeros, and they did. And they also waited after the second wave of that 28 days. And that was very impressive because the Victorians have, well, the whole of Australia benefited from that. Victoria saved Australia. That's why I made that call on Twitter that all Australians, all states and territories need to send their Pfizer down to Victoria because they saved us last time from circulating virus when they went into that hard lockdown. They are amazing. They're our heroes in this, and they need to be vaccinated to ensure that because they're not going to get out of this in the next week, and it will probably continue for at least another week, if from today you get zeros for 14 days, you've got enough time to start your Pfizer today and then get your second Pfizer in 21 days. And, or even if you, you know, 
if you're partially protected, uh, you're going to save uh, the rest of Australia, uh, particularly the next time from it leaking over the internal borders. And then the rest of Australia can get vaccinated at a slower pace if Victoria is protected. Mm. Mary Louise, you make so much sense and a lot more. And uh, I really appreciate your expertise and insights today. I know that everyone in lockdown at home, no doubt, will also be getting a lot from this conversation, just as much as I have, I'm sure. So we send our great thanks to you and also thanks uh, for recognising the contribution of Victorians in this time. Sometimes it can feel a little lonely here in lockdown. So we really appreciate your thoughts today. And uh, thanks so much again. It's a pleasure to stay well, and let me tell you, the whole of Australia is, um, is, you know, is hoping for the very best, and we all really do appreciate what Victoria has gone through and what you're going through now. Thank you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. This is 3RRFM. The show is Uncommon Sense and I'm Amy Mullins. It's great to be with you and it's also great to be joined by Dr Emma Shortis who has uh, joined me via Skype. She is also in lockdown like nearly all of us are depending on where you're based. Uh, But welcome to those who aren't in lockdown. I'm sure you're well aware of it by now Um, but it is certainly something that is... uh, yeah, at the front of the minds of those who are stuck in their homes with the heaters up, if you're lucky enough to have a, a working heater, I hope you do. Uh, so I want to welcome Dr. Emma Shortis, who is the Research Fellow at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT and joins me regularly to talk about US politics. Hi there, Emma, and thank you so much for coming back onto the program. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. I'm currently coming to you from my car, hiding from my <laughs> screaming toddler. <laughs> that is hilarious. And really, yeah, are you okay? Are you warm enough in your car? I am, yes. I'm warm enough and it's lovely and quiet in here, so hopefully it'll stay that way. Oh, might be a nice change. Maybe a, a good excuse to get out. That's right. All the way to the driveway. <laughs> yeah. What a classic. Well, thank you, Emma, for for being so adaptable and innovative (laughs) in your ability to join us on radio. And um, it's really, really good to check in with you about US politics because so much has been happening. In fact, there are more things I've thought of even in the last 10 seconds um, of what's been happening than... um, than the last couple of minutes. So we'll see where we get to with all the different interesting um, and sometimes disturbing areas of US politics. But to set the scene, the last time uh, we spoke, we were kind of in that um, period of Biden has entered the White House, goodbye Trump, let's hope we don't have to think about him ever again or say his name, which I just did, apologies everyone. Uh, But unfortunately... The idea that some people had, and myself included, had hoped was that, uh, well, once Trump is gone, the Republicans will, you know, not be beholden to him anymore. Why would they need to? He's lost his power. Uh, It doesn't seem that that is even remotely the case. It seems that the legacy of Trump and even his influence on the Republican Party continues to pervade their actions that they're taking at the federal level and also at the state level. 
Yeah, look, I think that's absolutely true. You know, as much as Trump himself has kind of faded into the background a little bit, you know, he's kind of in in exile in Mar-a-Lago in Florida, his legacy, as you say, is very much present. And I think that's been obvious even just in the last week or so where at the federal level there's been this effort to get a commission into the insurrection that Trump, you know, effectively incited in in January on the Capitol. So Democrats were hoping to establish a commission, much like the commission into the September 11 attack. So a kind of bipartisan investigation into what happened and how it happened and where responsibility lies. And initially, you know, in that kind of, I guess for want of a better word, that honeymoon period that you were referring to for Joe Biden, it looked like the Republicans were open to establishing such a commission. But it's since become very clear that that was kind of them, the Republicans doing a very typical dance where they pretend they're open to this kind of negotiation and bipartisanship. But when it comes down to it, the kind of the hold that not necessarily Trump himself, but Trumpism has over the Republican Party has won out again. And Republicans have refused to support this commission into that um, insurrection on the Capitol, voting it down um, quite clearly in the Senate. And so that's been the first time that Republicans have used the filibuster against Biden, which is the mechanism where essentially a minority can defeat efforts in the Senate. And that I think is significant because, you know, those of us who watch US politics suspect that this would this would happen, that Biden would really struggle to get his agenda through Congress, given that he has, you know, a, a tiny, slim majority in the Senate. And, and this is an indication that Republicans are going to c- continue that, you know, that kind of Trumpian effort to undo um, any Democratic efforts at reform and to essentially see the Democratic Party and, and Democratic leadership as illegitimate. Oh. I think you might have just dropped out there. Emma, are you there? Yes, I'm here. There we go. We're back. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, so, uh, yeah, as I was saying, I think we're, we're seeing this um, continuation of Republicans essentially seeing any kind of democratic leadership, a democratic presidency as completely illegitimate and doing everything that they possibly can to undermine it. Undermine it. And this, of course, you know, you mentioned the federal and the state level. This is just at the at the federal level. At the state level, Republican houses are enacting all kinds of effort at voter suppression, which very, you know, quite brazenly aims to be able to set up a situation where, you know, if we have something like we did at the last election where we have a a Republican Party insisting that an election has been stolen, that it becomes easier for Republican state houses to overturn election results. Yeah, I just saw that development and uh, the fact that Texas uh, is really of concern. The Texas Democrats have called that change um, to their voting system one of the darkest days for American democracy because, as you said, um, they've changed the language of the bill to make it easier for a judge to overturn an election, which, as we saw uh, in the last presidential election, was quite literally what President Trump at the time was was desperately, desperately trying to do and failed to do so because there was no reason to overturn a, a democratic mm. election. Uh, but, I mean, what are what are some of the concerns? Is it only Texas who are, are engaging in these types of voter suppression tactics post-Trump or are there other states that are kind of joining in? No, there there are certainly other states that are that are joining. I think Texas is at the forefront where where some of the most egregious efforts at voter suppression are happening. Just as you said, Amy, kind of efforts to get 
it make it easier for judges to overturn election results, but also to make it much more difficult for people, particularly people of colour um, and African-American people, to vote. So that's happening in Texas, but it's also happening in places like Arizona, where there's a, a basically a kind of farcical um, investigation happening into election fraud during this last presidential election. Also places like Georgia, which already, you know, notoriously um, has appalling voter suppression. So unfortunately, it isn't just Texas, though Texas is kind of, I suppose, leading the charge in these efforts at voter suppression. And this this has very, very immediate implications for the Biden administration, given that the midterm elections, uh, you know, in 2022, they're not, they're not far away. And I think Republicans and Democrats have their eyes firmly on those midterm elections, because that will be critical again to Biden's agenda. Mm. Well, a couple of disturbing developments that I saw, um, and you've just referenced there, Arizona, apparently Mark Fincham, who is a Republican in the State House, is seeking a GOP nomination to be Secretary of State, which is the top election official position in Arizona. He was at the US Capitol on the 6th of January um, and has voiced support for the Stop the Steal movement. Um, he's backed efforts to ret- overturn the, the 2020 election results and is a supporter of those ongoing efforts that you mentioned to overturn or review 2.1 million ba- ballots that were cast in Arizona's largest county. And then I also noted there was another um, a Republican congressman from Georgia Um Congressman Heiss, who voted to try and block certification of the Electoral College and is running as the top election official in that state. So, and apparently Trump has already endorsed him. So I'm wondering, you know, when we're seeing all of these Trump supporters and pro-Trump and pro-conspiracy theory uh, Republicans trying to run for high office, uh, is this some kind of way to secure the ongoing legacy of Trumpism in America? Look, I think it certainly is, and and that is it is partly the nature of the American political system, where there isn't that separation between the agencies that run elections and the elected officials themselves. So it's perfectly legal for for people like that who support you know Trump's effort to overturn elections to seek those offices where they then oversee elections in states like Arizona, which was critical to Joe Biden's victory, and so that's why you see Republicans focusing on those kind of states. And and essentially what they're trying to do is, I think, cement Trump's legacy. But also it's really important to remember, I think, that Trump is is at least partly a symptom um, and not a cause. And so this, you know, this effort is a lot older than Trump and Trump's presidency. And it's partly a continuation of that effort by Republicans, particularly in state houses, to essentially enshrine minority rule. And it's happening particularly in places like Arizona, and Texas and Georgia, where demographics are changing rapidly. And and in those states, Republicans are very well aware that if you had functioning democracies, Republicans would be much less likely to win those elections because in places like Arizona, the population is skewing younger, it's skewing Latina and to people of colour, who are traditionally people who don't vote Republican. And so Republicans have made a decision rather than appealing to those voters and what matters to them to engage in voter suppression. And and again, that was a Trumpian effort, but it was also much older than him. And again, that's, I guess, kind of why I say that while Trump himself is kind of faded into the background and isn't necessarily getting as much media coverage, those efforts that he, I suppose, untethered um, 
continue and will continue long long after him. Mm. And uh, we did see in the election, the presidential election, and also um, some of those runoffs that Arizona and Georgia were just some of those really crucial seats or states that have played a role in shifting the balance of power to the Democrats. Um, So I wonder, what do you think the Democrat response has been, uh, apart from being dismayed or concerned about these developments? Well, this is a really interesting question because I think, again, um, you can see a, a, a kind of split, I suppose, for want of a better word, within the Democratic Party about how to respond to this. Joe Biden is a kind of an interesting example of this because earlier in his political career, he was he's very much a kind of reach across the aisle kind of guy, you know, focused on bipartisanship. And, and part of his pitch for the presidency was that he would be able to convince Republicans to work with Democrats. You know, he'd be able to bring Republicans with him to heal the divide in American politics. You know, that's kind of what he was talking about when he was saying he wanted to restore the soul of America. But I think it's also been really interesting to watch Biden, I, I suppose, reflect on the lessons of the Obama presidency and I think come to the realisation that most Republicans are going to refuse to work with him. They might, you know, do that little dance that we talked about earlier where they pretend they're going to work with him, but essentially they are aimed quite brazenly at, at undermining him at every turn. So Biden, for his part, is focused on those Republicans who he thinks remain I guess, um, willing to to work with him in some areas. So there's a group of about six of them that are negotiating with the White House on things like Biden's big infrastructure bill. But there's also a big push, um, mostly from the left of the Democratic Party, to basically um, jettison those efforts to work to attempt to work with Republicans and to do things like reform the filibuster, which is that mechanism that allows a minority of Republicans in the Senate to kind of torpedo any of Biden's big efforts at reform. There's there's a big push to, to reform that. But some of the biggest blocks to that reform actually come from within the Democratic Party. So so someone like Joe Manchin, who's the uh, Democratic senator from West Virginia, has stated repeatedly that he's against reforming the filibuster. So this isn't as much about kind of internal tensions, I suppose, within the Democratic Party as it is about what the Republicans are doing because there's there's kind of those two very different camps, which one which suggests that the system is okay and we just need to kind of keep working with the Republicans, find those reasonable Republicans and find a way through without, you know, tinkering with the, the fundamentals of the American political system. And then there's the argument that says, no, we actually need to engage in dramatic political reform of things like the filibuster in order to fix what is essentially a broken democracy. Mm, well, it sounds like blind optimism in terms of the the former group. Uh, and it, I wonder, just, you know, putting it forward, do you think that Biden has that much to lose given that he's won the election? I know they are looking at midterms, so mm. obviously things can change and um, things did change for Obama as well. So, you know, that would put them on edge. But, uh, I mean, Trump seemed to just go hell for leather with what he wanted, um, I wonder, you know, what is stopping Biden and and co uh, from actually pushing forward with some slightly more radical changes that, you know, seem quite reasonable? Yeah, I think, look, I don't think there's not anything necessarily stopping him at the moment. I think he's a 
a, a very kind of considered man. So there was an interesting um, profile in the New York Times about him recently that said he's he's very detailed focus. You know, he wants to be across the detail, and things like his infrastructure package, which he's calling the American Jobs Plan, are enormous packages. You know, filled with intricate detail. And I think, you know, given that he's a kind of veteran of the American political system and and also the experience of the Obama years, I I do think that Biden is interested in systemic reform, but also reform that lasts. You know, he as much as he is issuing executive orders around things like climate, he knows that they they can be easily undone. You know, if a, a Republican sweeps into office in the next election cycle, all of that can be undone immediately. And so what he is, I think, I think what he is interested in doing is getting these big legislative packages through Congress in order to enact that systemic reform. You know, he apparently uh, kind of has one eye on Franklin Roosevelt and, and the reforms of the New Deal in the 1930s and the way that they completely reshaped American society for decades. You know, I think that's the kind of legacy that Biden is in and he knows that that will take him time and needs to be more than kind of executive orders and quick radical action. So I guess, you know, that's that's kind of my take on it, but it remains to be seen. It really, it remains to be seen whether Biden can get his budget, you know, through Congress in the, in the next few months, because that contains those really, some of those really big plans, you know, his $2 trillion infrastructure plan, his American jobs plan, his American families plan, because, you know, those are huge parts of his agenda. And and I suppose it, it will come down to whether he can get through those through Congress. And if he can't, what he does next and where it is that he ends up falling on those two sides of the Democratic Party. Mm, that's a really interesting take, Emma. Thank you for that. And um, it, re- it really brings home, I guess, some of the key reasons why one would undertake structural big picture reform, which is obviously so much uh, about class and racial mm. and gender uh, and other intersectional inequalities that are very, very extreme in the United States uh, across the country. And of course, coronavirus brought those out and made them even more stark than they have ever have been. Um, And I did see recently some figures um, and reporting from the Washington Post, which says that uh, in recent times, so in the last uh, couple of weeks, it's been observed that black Americans now account for 82% of COVID-19 cases in Washington, D.C., which is up from 46% late in 2020. Uh, white American cases have fallen to 9% from 33%. And then if you look at the proportion of people who are fully vaccinated, um, the report goes on to say that 20% of black and brown Americans uh, have been fully vaccinated and 29% of white Americans. So this is something that is concerning because um, obviously healthcare is greatly concerning in terms of access to healthcare, but also clearly even uh, vaccination and, you know, uh, the fact of acquiring the virus in the first place is um, bringing up these huge racial and class inequalities. Yeah, that's right. It do, it does reveal, I think, just how, you know, that when we talk about systemic racism, that's what we mean in that racism touches every aspect of American lives, be it healthcare, be it childcare, be it the environment, you know, wherever you want to look. Um, and and what COVID-19, I do, think, I 
sorry, what COVID-19 did was really shine a light on something that has existed for a long time, you know, again, long before Trump. And I think Biden has been very aware of that in a way that recent American presidents haven't been willing to kind of address it um, front on. I suppose, you know, it was really striking that in some of his earliest speeches in his um, election night speech, Biden mentioned, you know, he said the words white supremacy, which many American presidents have been very reluctant to do. And looking deeply at his agenda, Amy, I think he's, he's, he's seeing exactly what it is that you're talking about and, and he's looking to address it. And that comes with things like his American Families Plan, which focuses on things like childcare and healthcare and the and the systemic racism that infuses those areas. But it's also in things like the Infrastructure Plan, which recognises the intersection of racism and environmental justice. So one of the arms of the Infrastructure Plan, for example, is, is a program to replace America's water pipes, um, which are often still made of lead and and predominantly in poor and black and Latino communities, those lead pipes are creating huge health problems. You know, Flint, Michigan is the, is the obvious example, but it's not just there. And so what Biden is doing through these big legislative agendas is I think recognising that systemic racism, but also how interconnected it is across issues. That, and so what he is trying to do, I think, is connect things like infrastructure and environmental justice and healthcare and recognising that you, you sort of can't address one without addressing the other if you really want to tackle systemic racism in American society. Mm. And we did see some great leadership, at least on a global scale, from Biden as well with that climate change summit that um, brought so many nations together and we did see our Prime Minister participate in a rather embarrassing way, um, you know, really not, well, he was also muted uh, mm. for half of his speech, but um, it didn't, it kind of put into stark contrast the policy differences at the moment between countries like America that uh, until recently had been lagging because of mm. Donald Trump uh, and now Australia, I guess, in contrast, looking quite behind uh, the rest of the world because of that shift in leadership. Yeah, absolutely. And it has been a dramatic change, I think, in, in global environmental politics in a, in a very short amount of time, you know. And it's it's been really important for the Biden administration as well because I think that climate summit kind of signalled America's, what he is calling the United States return to the global stage. And it was also a shift for Biden in that, you know, kind of before that he was in crisis mode, he was reacting to coronavirus and attempting to, you know, roll out a vaccination program. But the climate summit was kind of his, I guess, foray into leadership, into proactive um, action when it comes to climate change. And you're right that, that the Australian government really stood out quite dramatically in that summit as our major trading partners, not just the United States, but the European Union, China, Japan, Canada, South Korea, you know, I can, I can keep going, mm. have committed to net zero targets by 2050 or 2060 um, and dramatic more sh short-term um, cuts, which the Australian government has refused to do. Um but I think it's really important to kind of, I guess, hold two things in our in our minds at once um, when it comes to this, because it's certainly true that the Australian government is a long way behind the rest of the world when it comes 
to this climate action and I think we'll stay there, you know, even if they do end up announcing targets um, at the G7 meeting in a couple of weeks, I think we need to be very sceptical about those targets. So there's that, but I think there's what we also need to hold in our minds is that actually while Biden's climate agenda is very radical compared to what we are used to, that bar was very low. And, and I think some, some really good analysis of Biden's climate plans, um, things like his infrastructure bill, suggests that actually he's still not going anywhere near far enough when it comes to climate change. And I, I am a, a little bit sceptical around this issue of climate leadership, which you know Biden has proclaimed is, is one of the United States' great aims in the world, because I think we're already seeing indications First, that that will end up taking a backseat to Biden's hawkishness on China and his security agenda, but also how vulnerable American climate leadership is to domestic politics. You know, in that one senator, one Democratic senator in the Senate might end up undoing Biden's climate plans, but also, you know, just like in Australia, how, uh, you know, the next presidential election might undo it all. And I think that, you know, for what it's worth, I think that's what the Morrison government is banking on when it comes to to Australia's approach to climate politics as well. Mm. And uh, and one of the other parts of interest in terms of, I guess, comparison points between Australia and America has been uh, the COVID-19 response. And we have seen, uh, obviously, Australia do relatively well in that prevention and infection control area, but not as well in vaccination. Um, <clears throat> and I wanted to, I guess, take this moment to reflect on something that we really have been talking about quite literally every single time we've met, we've met Emma, which is about looking at the numbers and also reflecting on the consequences of poor political decision-making um, and where America, I guess, got to in the, the, the infection count, which is one in 10 Americans have had a confirmed COVID-19 infection. That's um, more than 33.2 million reported cases. That's data from John Hopkins University. But that's also said to be an undercount of the actual infections, given their testing regime was not uh, particularly robust and accessible. And then uh, something that we've always spoken about was the deaths, and currently the death count in the United States is 594,000 deaths. So looking at that, that is a pretty, you know, sad and depressing picture. But one of the slightly more uplifting parts of the story is at least that there are a number of Americans, not the majority yet, but a number of Americans who have been fully vaccinated and their vaccination rates are actually pretty good with 41.2% of the population now fully vaccinated. That's 135 million Americans. So I wonder if you have reflections on, on this situation that we now see with America, given that so many people had to witness this ongoing disaster, really, in America for the entire of 2020. And obviously there are other comparable disasters around the world, like Brazil, like India, um, who have really done very poorly as well. But now we're seeing, I guess, a turnaround at least in vaccination. So, yeah, do you have any, I guess, bigger picture reflections, given this is something we've really had to consider and think about and talk about on this show so many times? Yeah, we have, haven't we? And I have, you know, I read some analyses that, that suggest that death toll that you mentioned is 
for, for similar reasons, significantly higher than than the kind of official count. And I don't think we can underestimate the kind of generational trauma that that, that will represent for not just Americans, I think, of course, but the whole world. I guess, you know, in terms of broader reflections, I'm I'm a historian and so I would kind of take the longer view and say that in the United States at least what we saw was was partly at least the result of decades of undermining of the role of government in people's lives in things like healthcare and ensuring people are safe and secure. And that dates back, of course, to the era of of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s and earlier. And and the very quick turnaround that we've seen in terms of the vaccination program that the Biden administration has rolled out so successfully and so quickly, I think, shows the, the potential power, at least, of government and what effective state programs can do to keep people safe and keep people healthy. And so I think that's been a really, um, I guess, a stark reminder of what decades of neoliberal undermining of the role of the state has done to the United States. And, And I think, again, that's why we're seeing such a dramatic contrast between the vaccination program in the United States and the one here where our government for its own reasons, has chosen that kind of role of role for private interest and the market and has been less focused on that, I guess, the role of government in those kind of rollout programs. And that has obvious consequences. And we've seen that in both the ravages of the pandemic in the United States, but also in the vaccine rollout program here. So I would say a lot of that, I suppose, is the kind of product of history and the overwhelming influence that Things like, you know, Reaganism and and Reaganomics and the role of American neoliberalism in particular in the global economy and the way it influenced how people see the role of government and the tools that government thinks is available to it in order to keep people safe. Mm. And uh, Emma, thank you so much for that. And just finally, uh, obviously, we won't get to the complexities of this, but um, I do just want to remark on Israel and Palestine, given Mm. this is something that won't uh, obviously end and it's ongoing. But I wanted to know something I think, which I hope is straightforward, which is have the Democrats uh, changed their position or their messaging on the Israel-Palestine conflict at all in this last round of conflict and tension? Um, I I think the very quick answer to that is no. The Biden administration has walked a very similar line to decades of American policy under, under both um, major parties in essentially unquestioning and loyal American support to Israel. What has dramatically changed is the fight that's happening within the Democratic Party between the progressive wing and the more conservative wing, where the progressive wing has been much bolder in pushing for recognition of Palestinian suffering, for even saying the P word, you know, until very recently, even saying Palestine in American politics could be an absolute career killer. So there's been a dramatic shift there, which has yet to influence American policy. And again, I think that's kind of symptomatic of Biden's general continuation of the history of American foreign policy that's been consistent, I think, in a way that his domestic policy has not been. Mm. Emma, it's been so great to hear from you again. I'm really so glad we got to caught up, even under these more trying circumstances. So thank you for joining us today, and I hope we can check in again soon. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.